Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it, open it up to Ephesians. If you know where Ephesians is, they're in the New Testament. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some that are under the chairs. You could grab one of those and follow along. We're going to be on page 976 there in the book of Ephesians, page 976 in the Black Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we'll jump over to Acts also later on, uh, Acts chapter 19 for just a little while we'll we'll look there at the uh, establishing of the church in Ephesus and that's on page 928 in the black bibles we'll start off though in Ephesians we're starting this new series called a new identity as we look in Ephesians we're hit really hard with this message that is really a universal theme in the bible that our identity can't come out of what we do because as we try to create our own identity Uh, We just continue to stumble and continue to fail. But as we trust or believe in the identity that God gives us as sons and daughters of God, then then that is what renews us. We have this motivation of we're renewed, we're changed because God loves us, not because I've fixed myself. Uh, And so as Christians, it's this really important discipline that we would remember that that I'm not uh, establishing myself, I'm not giving myself this great identity because I'm so special or I'm so hardworking or I'm so good-looking or whatever it is, but I have an identity based on what God has done, not based on what I have done. And Ephesians makes this really clear. This book, we're going to be in Ephesians for a few months. It really beautifully packages this in a real clean way so we can see it, right? Sometimes when you read the Bible, it's a little messy, a little confusing. But in Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians Paul just hits really hard about what Jesus, what God has done for us. And then in the last three chapters, he says, now you you live this new way, you do new things based on what God has done for us. And it continues to go back to that being the motivation. So often as religious people, you're here in a church, you must be somewhat religious, right? So uh, so you're, you're probably like me struggling with this from time to time. You think, I'm going to do these good things. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to live more rightly, and then God will like me more. Instead of understanding the, the relationship of faith where God says, I, I love you, and I couldn't love you anymore. I love you so much. I gave my son for you. I've adopted you as my child. Now live in a new way because I love you. And so we're going to just see that again and again in Ephesians. This, this new life that we live is based on the new identity that he gives us, not an identity that we give ourselves. So if you'll read, we'll start just in the first few verses. Um, these are uh, just kind of the opening remarks, the opening salvos, if you will, from the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. And often we kind of skip over this, but there's really good themes that are being set up. You know, if you watch a movie, you need to pay attention to the opening scene. It's kind of showing you where things are going, and that's what we have here in the beginning of Ephesus or beginning of Ephesians. So chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is about what God is doing. It says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, peace, because of what God is doing in your life. Let me pray and ask God to teach us this morning. God, we thank you for your word, and we come here hungry to be given our true identity. God, you know that we're weary and we're tired of struggling to make ourselves into something great, and we ask that you would do that, and we we pray that you would help us to understand your word, um, that you would teach us, that you would renew us. We come in faith, knowing that you're good. You prove that to us through Jesus, and so we come in in faith and hope 
uh, expecting for you to do great things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since I'm a Christian, I don't really believe in coincidence. And so uh, lately, the last few weeks, in a series of counseling situations and just in other conversations, I've been coming back to a book. It's actually a couple of books. It's a book called True Faced uh, that, that was then rewritten and kind of updated, and now it's called The Cure, but it's pretty much the same ideas, just repackaged a little bit. Um, and I've been coming back in, again and again to this concept of how we struggle with uh, putting on this false identity. We struggle as people trying to build an identity and being disappointed in what we've created, uh, disappointed in what we've constructed, feeling let down by God. Maybe we've worked hard to build this identity and don't feel like God has really blessed us in return for the identity we've built. And, and what we need to learn to do is to trust in what God has given us through Jesus, to trust in his provision and then to live in a new way out of that new identity that he gives us. In this book, he has this uh, kind of this vision, this kind of dream of what happens in the spiritual life. And the way he, he talks about it is that as you're walking down the road of following God, you come to a fork in the road at some point in our life. You come to a fork in the road and you've got a sign that points one way and a sign that points the other way. And the sign that points one way says pleasing God. And the sign that points the other way says trusting God. And as someone who loves God, you're kind of like, well, those both sound great, right? Which one do I choose? And, and we forget that Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so we follow the road to pleasing God because we think that, that sounds like that's, that's it. Those are the people that are really serious, right? I want to be with them. Trusting God, that's kind of like, that's not doing anything, right? I want to I please God. And so we go down that path. And he, he talks, the author John Lynch talks about this vision where he goes down this road and he comes to what he calls the room of good intentions. He walks into the room, and I'm going to read you a little passage from the book. He says, I'm stunned to find a huge open room filled with thousands of people. I scan the group trying to take it all in. So these are the people really living for Jesus, he says. Soon I notice there's a woman, a hostess maybe, standing next to me. She's immaculately groomed. Every hair is perfectly in place, her makeup accentuating her features. Her smile is wide. Nothing about her seems out of place. She says, welcome to the room of good intentions. She says it clean and cool like she's been greeting people all her life. There's just the tiniest little shred about it that's unsettling. But I'm so excited to finally be here, I don't think much of it. You have no idea how long I've waited to find this place. I return her smile, grasping her primly outstretched hand. I call out to the crowd almost involuntarily, hey, how's everyone doing? The room goes silent. It's full of beautiful people, smiling people. Some of them wear elaborately crafted masks, which is great because I love masquerades. This looks like my kind of place. One man steps forward. His smile, like the hostess, is broad. Welcome, he begins, shaking my hand firmly. We're fine. Thank you for asking. Just fine, aren't we, everyone? A few in the crowd behind him nod, smiling along. My kids are doing great, and uh, I'm about to close some very lucrative deals at work. More fit than when I was in high school, I'm telling you. I'm doing just fine. Everyone here is fine. We're all fine. Before I can reflect on how strange that sounded, the hostess asks how I'm doing. Me? Well, to be honest, I've, I've been struggling with some stuff. That, that's partly why I'm here. I, I've come here to kind of figure some things out. Shh, she tells me. Shh. And she hands me a mask and tells me to put it on. This is the room of good intentions. In the book, he, he talks about this struggle that we have, again, thinking 
that if we let people know how much we're struggling, if we're honest about it, then that'll wreck everything. You know, that we, we have to get our stuff together. We have to be fine for God to really like us. I mean, sure, we know he loves us, but he doesn't really like us unless we're really walking with him, right, and doing things uh, correctly, getting our stuff in order. And so we begin to put these masks on. We begin to craft these identities. We begin uh, to put on this facade and say, I'm fine. I'm working on this. I'm working on that. I've, I've got it together. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. I'm improving my life. And, and one of the most important things that we're going to learn from Ephesians, but that we'll just continue to learn through the scriptures as we are confronted with Jesus, is recognizing that in order to become healthy, we have to recognize that we're sick. We, we, have, to, we have to recognize that we have a problem, that we can't fix ourselves, that we are broken. And as Christians, it's so important that that becomes a part of our community, that we begin to have a community of grace where we recognize that we're a people that come together not having it all fixed, but we're people that come together needing God's help. And she texted a friend last night. I said, man, pray for me because right now I'm just feeling this temptation. You know, tomorrow I'm going to be preaching and and I want to be awesome. But pray that I would be able to just share God's grace with people. We, we all struggle with this. We, we want to be great. I believe God's created us with gifts. God's created us in his image to be great, but only as we reflect his image, only as we reflect him. And we have to get our identity from him, not from what we create, not from what we manufacture. And so in Ephesians, again and again, we're going to be just reminded of this. We're going to be bombarded with this identity that we can get only by being his child, only by being accepted and loved by God and what he's done. And then, then we'll begin to grow in newness. Then we'll begin to live a new life. The, the first thing that we see in just these small few verses is, is that we have an authoritative identity. So as we think about this new identity that we get from God, we don't create ourselves, we don't craft our own mask, we, we have to receive by trusting God. The first thing that we see here is it's an authoritative identity. If you look at just that first little half of verse here, it says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's God's will. It wasn't Paul's doing. If any of you know the story of Paul, uh, remember where Acts shows us his story in Acts chapter 8 and 9 and and going on from there. Uh, We see that Paul's will was to stop Christianity in its tracks. That that was Paul's will. His, His will was to slow this thing down. He was killing Christians. He was saying this is stupid, but God had other plans. And God struck him down and turned him around. And really, that's the story of all of our lives. We, we were going our own way. And God said, no, I have other plans for you. I'm going to show you mercy through Jesus and turn you around and give you a new life. And so Paul's story is more dramatic than most of ours, probably. Most of us haven't been knocked off a horse by a blinding light. But, but we've been stopped. We've been turned around because of God's grace to us. By the will of God, he's turned us around. And he says, I have a purpose for you. With his authority, he says, I've got plans for you. I want you to do this with your life, not that. And so he takes Paul and redirects him. Even the word apostle, sometimes we think of apostle just in the terms of this kind of authoritative, um, kind of thinking of it in in big terms about the the person that it's describing, right? Like Paul, he's big, he's authoritative because he's apostle. But really, that word is pointing to the authority of the sender, Right? Apostle is pointing to the authority of the one that sends out the apostle. An apostle is a sent one. 
When you just break it down, that, that word in the Greek, that's literally what it means. Most literally, it means a sent one. When he says, I'm an apostle, he means I'm a sent one. I'm one of Jesus's sent ones, right? So that's a, that's a reference to the authoritative one, which is Jesus, not Paul. Paul has a, a sent authority. We have an identity that comes from the sending one, this God who loves us and sends his son for us and then sends us to bring that grace to other people as well. Uh, what's also interesting, you can, you can think of apostle in its literal, literal meaning, sent one, um, the way it was most commonly used, right? Because there's literal meaning of words. You could look up a word in the dictionary and go, oh, well, nobody really uses it that way today, right? People use it some other way. Well, apostle in the first century, the most common use of the word was a certifying certificate that went with cargo from the emperor. And so it's this you know, certificate, this little piece of parchment that would go with a shipment and say, this is sent on official business from the emperor. That's, that's how the word was used in everyday life. And so Paul is saying, not look at me, I'm great, I'm awesome. He's saying, I'm sent by someone. I'm sent from someone. I have somebody else's business in mind. It's the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, sent by Jesus by the will of God. So again, we have to see our identity as an alien identity. God has plans for us. He sent us. Um, and, and so this is, this is Paul's certifying stamp. He's saying, I'm, I'm sent from Jesus. I've come from him. It's not about me. It's about Jesus and his desire for you. That's a great place to start because so often we bring it back to ourselves and think, well, if I, if I can get my stuff together, then Jesus will like me more. But right now, Jesus doesn't really like me very much because of what I'm doing. And we, we put it all on ourselves instead of recognizing the sending agent is Jesus. He's, he's sent for you. He loves you because that's who he is. He's coming after you. So we have to look at the, the return address. I have a picture here of a envelope with a return address that says Department of Treasury, um, Commissioner of Internal Revenue. So if, if you get an envelope like that, if you're being audited, you'd probably be kind of upset, right? But if, if you're waiting for a, uh, a tax refund, you'd be pretty excited to see that stamp on an envelope, right? Be like, all right, this is sent on official business from the IRS or from the Department of Treasury. I'm getting my check, and you'd be excited about that. Well, again, that that difference in perspective can come into our understanding of God and what he has to say for, to us. Um, if you think God's mad at you, you don't want to receive a shipment from him, right? You don't want to receive a letter from him. Like, I don't want any mail from this guy. He's mad. I'm a sinner and he hates me and he's angry at me, right? Often we think that way. But what the gospel tells us is that, no, he sent Jesus for you to die for you because he loves you. And so we should see that return address and see this is a good message. This is a good identity. This is a sweet thing that he's sending to us. Many of us identify ourselves by what we've done, what we've created, what we've sent, what we've made, what we've built. And the gospel again and again tells us, no, you have to identify yourself, who you are, by what God says about you. And God says, yes, we are sinners, but he sent a savior for us to take our sins upon himself. So we could have a new life. We could be his children. We could be, uh, we could be something that delights him. Someone that he loves. The next thing I want us to see is that we have a noble identity. We have a noble identity. And this is kind of a uh, juxtaposition you have here. If you look at um, the second half of verse 1, it says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we have a kind of a, a contradiction or a juxtaposition, whatever you want to call that, a contrast here, right? Of you've got saint which is like holy person, and you've got Ephesus, pagan, evil city. 
witchcraft, ritual prostitution, corrupt bank system, uh, one of the greatest pagan temples in, in the first century, and saints, holy people. And that's kind of the weird contrast we find ourselves in too, trying to live as holy people, wanting to live a different life in a, just this pagan, corrupt world that we live in. And that's the same kind of situation they find themselves in back here. Um, just in a side note, is, is some, when, if you study the book, um, some people are curious about, was this really written to Ephesus? Because a lot of our early manuscripts of this book don't have in Ephesus to it. Uh, and as you research it, what you understand is a lot of times uh, Paul would send these circular letters and that Ephesus was this kind of uh, church planting center in the middle of all these other cities in Asia. And Paul actually spent more time uh, in Ephesus than any other place. And so the way I understand it as I read that, recognizing that some churches didn't have in Ephesus, is that he sent this as a circular letter, and it took on the name of Ephesus because it was primarily to the church in Ephesus because that was kind of the big center of these other churches. But then it was also a universal message. When we read Ephesians, we recognize he doesn't have as many like real personal asides like he does in other books. You know, in some of his other books, he makes these little like say hello to Bobby and Sally and Sue and you know those kind of little comments you see in the New Testament letters. He has less of those here. Ephesians is a more universal kind of broadcast of God's goodness to all Christians, which I think is exciting for us because we, as Christians living 2,000 years ago, can go, okay, this is, this is even more universal. This applies even more broadly maybe than other letters. They all have universal application, but this one really he wrote for, for a lot of people to hear and receive. If you flip over to Acts 19, we can kind of look at how this, how this kind of evolved with the setting up of the church in, in Ephesus. Acts 19 is on page uh, 928. So the, the saints in Ephesus, again, the, these were holy ones in Ephesus. I want to, as you're turning to Acts 19, just kind of redefine, I, I use the term noble identity because the word saint means holy. Uh, there's one Greek word in the New Testament that's translated in multiple ways. It's hagios, and it's translated um, saint. Uh, we use it to make the word sanctified, which is the process of being made a saint. Um, we use it for the word holy. We use it for the word holiness. And so you've got this whole kind of conglomeration of words that all mean being set apart for special use. And so God is taking us and he's giving us this identity and saying, I'm setting you apart for special use. You're my special child. I love you. I want to do beautiful things with you. I want you to glorify me in the midst of this ugly and broken world that we live in. We, we all know that the reality is, is we're still broken. We still struggle. Life is still hard. But God says, I'm taking you and I'm setting you apart. So we are a saint, present tense, because of his adopting love through Jesus. And we'll see more of that next week. So he has already adopted us. We're already set free, forgiven. We're his child. He delights in us. But then, I don't know about you, but I still sin sometimes. Probably, probably the rest of you don't. But for me, I still sin sometimes. And so I look at this and I go, but I'm not, I'm not really set apart. I mean, I still struggle. And he says, now I've made you my child. You're mine. You belong to me. So you are set apart and I am setting you apart. I am sanctifying you. And so a lot of times in theology, we use this word sanctification to talk about this ongoing process. I am, I am setting you apart. I'm working with you. Another beautiful image that came out of this book is, is the idea of instead of seeing God over there and I'm trying to get my stuff together so that I can get back to him, we see God right here because he's adopted me I'm his child, and he's got his arm around me, 
and the two of us are working on my stuff together, right? So God is with me. My sin is over here. We're working. He's setting me apart. He's helping me grow up. When I stumble, he picks me up, and we're walking this life together. It's not God over there, and I got to get the sin out of the way so that he'll like me again. No, he's adopted me, and he's made me his child. So he's going to work with me. Let's look at the the contrast here of what is Ephesus like. Um, We could pick up starting in verse 8, Acts 19. So over in Acts 19, verse 8, get a little picture of what it was like. Um, He entered the synagogue. This is the place where the Jews gathered. And for three months, this is Paul, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, so the way is what the early Christians were called, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So he goes and he rents out a lecture hall in Ephesus, big city, rents out a big lecture hall. Um, it says in verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So again, this is one of the early, what we would call mega churches, church planting center, you know, a lot of ministry going on here. Uh, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila here. Apollos comes through. He sends Timothy at another time. We see a couple of chapters later in Acts that he's raised up this whole team of elders. So there's multiple leaders. There's a lot of work happening here. This is a multiplying place. This is a a large church, a church like ours, or really even a bigger, probably much bigger church where, you know, new churches are being sent out, new missionaries are being sent out. A lot of stuff is happening. And so we see a lot of exciting stuff happening in this church, a lot of work, but it's it's still a crazy town, right? There's this contrast of saints are being built, people are being set apart, people are coming to know Christ, people are walking in holiness, but it's, it's still a nutty place. Let's, let's read on. Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So itinerant Jewish exorcists. Do we have any itinerant Jewish exorcists here today? Okay, I don't want to misrepresent you guys this morning, but in general, it was this, you know, these group of guys that went around casting out evil spirits. They're kind of, think kind of witch doctor. You know, you'd help people with little, little problems, but also spiritual things. And they see this Jesus thing seems to be really powerful. So they don't, they don't love Jesus. They don't know Jesus. They don't have an identity as one set apart by Jesus they just see it as one more tool in their toolkit, right? They just see it as one more trick to help them be better at their job. And so what they've done is basically they've got their little business and they're going along in their little truck and they stick a Jesus bumper sticker on their truck and think, we'll be better at our business now, right? It's like a lucky rabbit's foot that they've put in their pocket. And so look at what they do. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they start adding that into the mix, right? All right, we'll start throwing out evil spirits by throwing Jesus in. Now, God is not a lucky rabbit's foot. And I just want to really challenge you guys this morning. It's, this is a very dangerous thing that we can fall into living in the Bible Belt. So we see these people that seem to have a good life, and well, they know Jesus, and, and maybe Jesus is the road to having more money or to healing or to everything being better, and we can use him like a lucky rabbit's foot. But he's not going to be used that way. Again, he's authoritative. He's in charge, and he's going to take hold of us. He's going to do noble things with us by his grace. We're not going to do noble things to ourselves by using him as, as some kind of lucky charm. So, so read what, what follows. This is a crazy story. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. All right, so it's the seven sons of Sceva. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
This is not good. Verse 16 says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Um, This is a great... Man, a great reminder to me in ministry. You know, when I have those temptations, I want to be awesome. I want, I want to do great things. I want to build a big empire, right? I want to do great things. And when I have this temptation to use Jesus as a lucky rabbit's foot so that I'll be more successful, I just think to the seven sons of Sceva, right? I look back at the story and I think of the evil spirit that, that beat them all and sent them out bleeding and naked. I say, I, I better submit myself to Jesus and his will for me rather than trying to use him to bless my success, And I think that's such a struggle that we have in life. We want to say, Jesus, I want to do great things. I want to be successful. I want to be awesome. I want to create my my own identity. And I'll just, I'll bring you along for the ride. I'll bring you along for the ride to join my agenda instead of submitting ourselves to him. He he wants to do great things in our life. I hope you see this this paradox here. He, He wants to give us this noble identity. He wants to set us apart. He wants to make us saints. That's what a saint is. It's this, this beautiful thing. He set you apart for his purposes. And so we have this incredible destiny. He wants to do awesome things through our life, but it's only as we submit to him, as we trust him, he'll begin to do beautiful things. It may not be the beautiful things we wanted him to do, right? It may not be our agenda, but he's going to do great things through our life as we trust him, as we belong to him, as we believe that he loves us. Look at what else is going on in Ephesus. Again, crazy city, it says, so the word of the Lord was really extolled. They began to fear God even more. Um, verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. So this, this shocked people, and they got a little more serious about, wow, I've been, I've been messing around here. This is serious stuff. Verse 19, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is like millions of dollars. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And again, a lot more happens. You can go back and read for yourself about all the, the crazy things that happened in, in Ephesus. But this is this pagan town, this corrupt town, this evil town. People are practicing magic arts, ritual prostitution. They are far from God. And God begins to set people apart. And part of that process, apparently he's setting people apart. And they get a wake-up call when the seven sons of Sceva are beaten, and they go, oh, wow, I haven't, I haven't really gotten rid of all my junk. I need to get rid of the rest of it now. And God begins setting people apart even more. Again, the way this works in the Christian life is God adopts us. He says, you're my child, and so we're a saint from the very beginning. You're set apart. You, you have this noble identity. You belong to him. You're in his family. And then that is the process by which he changes you. You, you don't say, God, I'll change so that you like me. Say, God loves me, and now I want to change. And that's the ongoing process. The process is he changes you bit by bit as he trusts more and more in his love and his grace for you. It's a process. It starts at a point in time. Faith in Jesus. You're a new person. Process. He makes you newer and newer along the way. I have a picture here of a drum. As we move on to through the book of Ephesians, Like I said, there's these challenges to live in holiness, to live our lives in a new way, right? To throw away sexual immorality, to be faithful in our marriages, to be good employees, all all these good people things that we want to do with our life. But that all comes after the gospel identity. 
And, and what the book of Ephesians says is you, you live this new life out of what God has done for you. And so I had the picture of the drum here because I was remembering how when I was a little kid, my brother was, is, he still is, eight years older than me. And uh, so I'm four, he's 12, he's got a drum set in his room. And that drum set is holy and precious to him, right? That drum set is holy, it is set apart. It has been sanctified, it's in this special space in the corner of his room and his four-year-old brother is not allowed to play on the drum set, right? Because it's special, it is made for music. I, I think he could make music when he was 12, I don't know, but it, that's its purpose, right? And he doesn't want his four-year-old brother uh, taking a spatula to it and tearing it to pieces. This isn't his actual drum. That's just a picture I found. But he doesn't want me tearing it up, right? And that, I think that's the image that helps us as we understand God's desire for us to live holy lives. He wants to set us apart. He wants to use us to make beautiful music. He wants to do beautiful things through us. It's not this arbitrary, like, I'm going to tell you what to do, and I don't want you to have fun because I'm a mean and grumpy God. That, that's how we often think about it. But God has beautiful things in mind for us. And so morality and, and living in holiness is all about you being set apart for his purposes. You're his drum, and he didn't want you being teared, torn to pieces. Okay? You're his musical instrument, and he wants to do beautiful things in our lives. That's what holiness is. That, that's the vision I hope you get of holiness, that he wants to do something beautiful with you. He doesn't want you to be just torn to pieces. That's why we flee immorality, because we know God loves us, and he knows what's best for us. It's the gospel. Again, we get this so mixed up in, in the culture, you know, in the culture wars. In the culture wars, you've got, you know, the conservative people that say, you know, live rightly. And I would say, well, yeah, live rightly, that's good. But we don't live rightly to get God to like us. We live rightly because God loves us already. And we know that he wants to do beautiful things in our life. The, the last thing I want us to understand is the loved identity. We have a loved identity, and we're going to hit this really hard next week, but we'll just kind of jump into it a little bit here before we are totally out of time. The last verse back in Ephesians, so back on page 976, Ephesians 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a throwaway greeting. This is really important theology for Paul. Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm writing to you, you better get your stuff together or God's going to be really ticked off at you clean up and then God will like you. He says, no grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This has echoes of how Jesus taught us to pray. We should pray to God as our Father, knowing that he loves us, he delights in us. I know this is really hard for some of you. For some of us, we had a, had a difficult relationship with our dad. And so you may see God as distant because your dad was distant. You may see God as angry because your dad was angry. You may see God is passive because your dad was passive or abusive because your dad was abusive. What I want you to understand is you know um, that your dad failed you in some ways and you know that because you have a, a consciousness of what a perfect father is supposed to be like. And the God of the universe is that perfect father by which all other fathers are judged. And he calls you to accept his love for you, to trust in his love, that he loves you. I have a picture here of a, of a daddy hugging his kid. I don't know if you can see that well from the back, but I want you to envision uh, the father delighting in his child. You have to continually beat that image into your brain. You have to remember that. Because of what Jesus did for you, your heavenly father delights in you, and you, you can come to him with your problems. You can come to him 
with your struggles. You can talk to him, just like Jesus said in Matthew. You can talk to him as your father, as your daddy that loves you. He says, grace to you. Grace is unmerited favor. God's goodness to you that you didn't deserve. Yes, we're sinners. And God took care of that by putting our sin on Jesus. He says, grace to you and peace. Peace means there's now two parties that are brought together when they were separated before. It says, yes, you were separated, but that's been taken care of because of Jesus. Grace to us, peace to us from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that I think we struggle with is if you've grown up in the the Bible Belt or in religious institutions or you bounced around from one church to the other, is you can think of Christianity as a cultural thing. Uh, You can think, I'm a Christian because I grew up going to church. And I'm on that team. Um, Christianity is a supernatural thing. It's you having a new heart, trusting by faith that God loves you because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you've done. So I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care if you've walked an aisle. I don't care if you've given lots of money. We like it if you give lots of money. But I, I don't care if you've taught Sunday school. If you don't believe that God loves you, if you don't believe that he loves you, that he's your daddy that loves you, your good daddy, not the failed daddy you may have had, if you don't believe that he's your good daddy that loves you because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you've done, not because of how impressive you are, but because of what Jesus has done, if you don't know that, if you don't trust that, you're not a Christian. And I don't say that to push you out. I I say that to say there's something a lot more beautiful. There's something much better for you. This is my invitation in. I'm telling you, you, gotta, you have to understand that if you don't know that he loves you, you're on the outside. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn, turn from self and trust in him. He loves you. Come in the door. Come in the door and the door is Jesus. Jesus gave his life for you. He took all your sins on himself. He died. He rose from the dead. He gives you his righteousness. And as we study this over the next several weeks, we'll begin to understand that the only identity we can have is, is the one that our Father gives us because He loves us. This identity is one who is loved. And only because of that can we live in a new way. Only because of that can we begin to walk rightly. Start to put behind us the stupid stuff that we've done in the past. Again, we're not doing it so that He'll love us. We're doing it with His arm around us. With His arm around us. Working on it together. He's not going to let you go. Let me pray for us. God, we, you know we struggle to believe this. We want so badly to create our own image, our own mask, our own identity. God, help us to trust in you and what you've done for us. God, we pray that you would continue to pursue us ruthlessly by your grace. Thank you for giving us Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.